Podcasts are an independent way for podcasters like me to bring a local voice to your ears. At the Spent the Rent Podcast, we strive to raise awareness of topics that affect the often underrepresented. Our title sponsor, Oregon Cashflow Pro, offers free money management advice that can help you take control of your finances. At OregonCashflowPro.com, you will find videos to guide you towards your goal of financial freedom. For more info, there will be a link in the show notes. The following podcast is available on all major streaming sites, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. You can now listen to all previous episodes, donate to the podcast, and buy shirts directly from the Spent the Rent podcast at our newly designed official website, strpod.com. Suicide affects not only the mentally ill, but also anyone struggling with serious lifestyle problems. Strained relationships, life stressors, substance abuse, and economic uncertainty can leave one feeling like they are left without hope. Though suicide affects everyone across the board, it has become the second leading cause of death for those ages 15 to 24. Today we are joined by a woman who has made it her life work to share her personal story and spread awareness and provide advocacy for those struggling with mental health and those affected by suicide. Today on the Spent the Rant podcast, we talk prevention with Sarah Wapner Schofield. Welcome to the Spent the Rent Podcast. I am your host, Self-Esteem Boat Willie. My guest today is Sarah Wapner Schofield. Sarah, I want to thank you for coming. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. So I was talking to Blair, I think it was episode 14, Blair Conrad. We talked about her personal story of her bout with drug addiction and homelessness. And I asked her if she had any friends that, that she thought that would be good interview guests. And she's like, oh my gosh you need to talk to my friend Sarah. So I just went for it and I said, okay, then we talked for a couple months. I really wanted to do the suicide episode during the, the winter because of obvious reasons. Suicide is high when seasonal depression and all that stuff in the holidays. And I think economic yeah. is a big part. We're going to get into all oh, of yeah. this before we get any deep into what's, you know, the whole, uh, story and back history of it all we do want to give a disclaimer about how you know you can speak on that we are here these are these are our opinions they don't reflect anybody else or any organization so go ahead and speak on that yeah um i am a suicide prevention advocate here in eugene uh, and i try to do as much as i can in my community with a lot of different organizations um, but the organization that i choose to uh, volunteer and advocate for and uh, put my funds that i raise into is the american foundation for suicide prevention but i am not an employee uh, i stand alone my opinions like you said are my own um, and the other thing that's important to note here is that i'm also not a professional so anything that i say that um, is about my story or how i've handled my situation Situations. Maybe that works for you. Maybe that resonates for you out there. But I'm not a doctor. I'm not a therapist. I don't have any licenses. So, right, right. you know, just know that. So it's just important for, for people to understand that like, this is just two locals, you know, that are having a conversation about it. And we don't want to get our emails flooded. <laughs> That's which, right. Which, you know, if you're listening, then you want to flood my email, go for it. But <laughs> so let's go into just start right off with your personal story. I mentioned, um, in the write-up, if people have read the description about your kind of genetic 
predisposition to bipolar. You're very open about that, which I, I think is extremely commendable. So let's just go right into your personal story about, um, you know, your grandfather and your father and your brother have all go ahead and talk on that. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I definitely had a genetic predisposition. I There's mental health condition issues and stuff on my mom's side as well, although um, the losses that I've had are uh, on my dad's side. Uh, so that's certainly a thing. Uh, and also, I always question the kind of nature versus nurture situation right. because I have I am diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Um, but I also have PTSD from the trauma of my childhood uh, and living with someone who's mentally ill and also losing them to suicide when I was 10. Um, and then I also have uh, anxiety and panic disorders. And part of those are um, kind of about this manifestation over the years that I developed as a small child. So um Yes and no. Yes, I probably have bipolar disorder because my father had it and my brother had it. And most doctors would agree that the likelihood that that's why I have that. Um, but PTSD comes from trauma and that has shaped part sure. of my story and my program. Um, like I said, when my uh, father uh, passed away when I was 10 and he had struggled with a mental health condition. Um, however, he was... Uh, an addict and alcoholic and he chose for a very long time to just bury that and be angry and um you know say well you know i'm not i'm not my dad and i refuse to say that and he is a weak coward and blah 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 and then he finally started to say okay maybe i need help and unfortunately by that time he was so sick and had absorbed so much of the pain over his time um, that he didn't survive it. Right. And um, so growing up both with the trauma of having a person who is ill being your parent <laughs> right? and also um, losing them, they, you know, that created all sorts of chaos in my family. Um, and at the time, my, my brother JP um, died by suicide in 2011, but he's almost 10 years older than me. So when I was 10 and my father died, my brother was almost 20 years old. He was, you know, an adult sure. and he, um, had struggled. I mean, uh, I always say shit ran downhill in my family because my dad was great at making my mom and my brothers feel like crap. And my brothers were great at making me feel like crap. Right. And so when it was all said and done, we were all just kind of left like wrung out, which I think is pretty common, you yeah. know, and, 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 and one of the major things that inspired me to bring you on is that I have a very similar or different, you know, a lot different, but very similar story as far as my mother, uh, mm -hmm. when I was nine years old, attempted suicide. Now she did survive. And it's hard to say if it was, you know, that she intended, I I've read some statistics when we were coming up to this, that the, the rate, the highest rate of suicide is white males in their fifties. And, and, you know, we've, we talked off air about why and reasons and people can do their own research, but obviously the access to firearms is higher, like the, not access, but the, just the, you know, the ownership rates are higher and there's just different things. Cause my mom always tried to do, she did it a few times in my life and it was always with pills mm -hmm. and women attempt suicide at higher rates, but they're not as successful at it. Right. Because guns work 50% of the time, right, and that's pretty right. effective. So at nine years old, which I can relate, you said you were 10, and that I was so confused, and I've dealt with a lot of different issues from it. And the nurturing in 
what is it that you said nurturing and uh, uh nature versus nature nurture. versus nurture yeah that is something i it resonates with me because and i wanted to talk on this because with my mom what it did she was somebody that i always admired because of her empathy and so one of the reasons that she had these suicidal episodes was because she felt so deeply everything mm-hmm. so it was i looked at it as a negative thing the action but it also was a very beautiful thing mm-hmm. not the act of suicide but what was getting her to that was because she felt so deeply about everything so with with that i watched that and i was inspired by that and then i found in my not like late teen early 20s i battled with depression and also probably genetic my brother's by diagnosed manic depressive and my mom was bipolar and my dad is undiagnosed, but we'll not even get into that. But <laughs> so it's it, but it, it makes this thing where I found that the best way to act out and get people to, you know, to pay attention was by making these outlandish claims. And I never I had made stupid attempts, but I never had any intention on following through. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about that learned behavior that mm-hmm. it's something that there's a stigma that there's a call for help or sometimes people say, oh, they just want attention. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. duh, let's give it to them. So Absolutely. I'd like you to speak on that if you could. Well, you know, we know this um, about people who are suffering with mental health conditions of all kinds or addictions. And that is this idea that we have exactly what you said, that they need to be pushed out of society, isolated, is like we know now that that is the opposite that people who are in those kinds of situations need to be brought into their community right. they need to be connected with people they need to be given help and um one thing that you said was with your mom the feeling so much you always looked at as a positive even though that was what also side kind of destroyed for sure. her. and for me that's um a big piece of the way that i manage my recovery which is continuously trying like even my psychiatrist like stop calling it a problem right like you got a lot of things i'm really creative i'm really passionate like when i'm good i'm super successful as a human all of those things also are part of my bipolar disorder and so being able to kind of say you're right like people who are suffering or living with mental illness like you can say you know, they're a lost cause. They're just garbage because they're too screwed up. But the reality is that we all have something to bring and we just have to have that be what is, you know, fertilized. Right. Like it's almost a positive thing in a weird way because, you know, it's like attention deficit disorder in adults, especially. Mm -hmm. And I think in kids it's misdiagnosed constantly, but in adults that have accepted the diagnosis and get Mm -hmm. treatment therapy, whatnot, whatever they do, it's because they're wired differently. It's not like they're wrong or they're right. affect, you know, they're broken. It's because mm-hmm. they're wired differently. And, and when people can use attention deficit disorder or uh, OCD, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder to thrive, to thrive, then that's looked at, Oh, what a yeah. successful human being. Mm-hmm. But yet if it, if it's, if they're banging their head against the wall, then people are like, oh my God, they're broken, you know? Yeah. And, you know, for me, and it's as far as bipolar disorder is concerned and some other um, mental health conditions, a lot of that starts to present when you're, you know, late teens, early 20s. So you're um, maybe not really understanding what's going on and you're, you know, feeling really overwhelmed. And I think for me, having to accept that 
this is what it is. And it took me a really long time. I didn't understand, even growing up in a household with somebody who had a mental illness, when I started having these experiences, I did the same thing. I internalized it. You're stupid. You're a bad person. You, and this was a big one. Um, your boyfriend is making you sick because he's a jerk. True. And that was like this dysfunction and what was going on caused me to think like, oh, well, I'm just a loser. So for me, trying to accept that I have something that is not me, like I'm not bipolar, I have bipolar disorder. It's separate. It isn't something that I failed in life. And you're right. When people are successful, I've had people say to me that went to high school with me, like, I cannot believe that you are dealing with this because when I was in high school, like, I thought I was going to be the president of the United States. Like, right. I was a straight-A student. I was an That's athlete. Not such a great I did job. all the things. No, no. Right, right. No. I hear, I hear no. it's really hard. No, and um, I think it's tough because I think accountability as well is important. So by, you were saying, shifting blame or whatever it is to different things, that's not necessarily... I don't, I'm, I'm paraphrasing and that's not what you're saying, but like, that's not always the the end of it. So like when you deal with depression and you're like, Oh, it's my partner, whoever I'm with, that's causing me to feel more pain. That may or may not be true. But at the same time, we, at the end of the day, have to answer to ourselves. Absolutely. So, so there's this, this weird accountability issue that sometimes with, I, I can relate to bipolar. I've never been diagnosed because I think that when you create a different persona, to escape from your reality because you've had trauma yep. as a child. And, you know, I, I don't want to speak too much on my brothers because him and I are not close for one. And, but it was a big part of our childhood core with my mom, my brother and I, because he was kind of the, the hard nosed person in the bunch. Mm-hmm. And it was the manic depressive thing was something that was talked about very openly. And, and, you know, it was looked at as like, we're going to have to work around this. But I think a lot of it came because when I was a kid, my mom was sexually assaulted basically in front of us. And so we had to take that different ways. And you were talking about your older sibling that at the older age, you say 20, like it's an adult. Well, it's not. I mean, like it is a young adult, but at that time, it's almost impossible to have the tools to be able to, you know, deal with life Mm -hmm. just in general. And again, personal accountability. And what was I saying before about, uh, off air about, um, like how, you know, young teens, the big, the scary thing to me with suicide is, is that they just do not have the tools to realize that things are not temp, that things are not permanent. Right. You know? And so you have to deal with these episodic epi- moments mm-hmm. where you're like, oh my God, this is it. This is it. Yeah. And, this, and you're flailing your arms around and you have to understand that it's like, this is temporary and I can get mm-hmm. through this. Yeah. And know? for me, I live in kind of both sides of this. So Um, there's really two ways that I see that. So for somebody like me who is dealing with chronic suicidal ideation, I mean, I started when I was 10 years old telling people if I live to be 40 years old, I'll be lucky because I'm probably going to kill myself. So this is something that's been a long time. Well, now here I am, I'm 40. So looking forward, I, this experience looks different for me because I had, when I was 18, an answer because there were people around my brother, my family said, we know that you need help. You need to go to the doctor. Let us point you in that direction. And I was lucky, but going through like nobody, none of those people 
fix it for me. None of those people made it possible right, for me you to made live. The choice. Like, right. I had to, and I have a ten. I was an attempt survivor. I ended up in the hospital. The reason that I did it was because I was being judged by my coworkers for being a sick person, and it was. I felt completely unable to control that. And so for people who have chronic illnesses, um, whether that be physical that makes them feel hopeless or that be mental, um, you know, we're the people who need to really like take responsibility and find those things. And if you know somebody who's in that situation, like help them empower themselves right. to figure out how to do it because right. there's not going to be a cure. And so for me, I'm like, this is my decision. Like, yes, I can be out of control. Yes, I can get to a place where I'm not thinking clearly, but I also need to have tools and things that I can say, okay, guess what? You're not thinking clearly. So let's this is what I do in that this. situation. Yeah. Exactly. And, and with that- teens, they, people or people who have what you like, what you said, um, you know, a, tragic situation in their life that puts them in there for me that is where intervention from the outside that is where people need to be able to get access get help recognize and teens recognizing that early on I mean not even teens I hate to say this it's so screwed up but um I just read an, I read two articles in the last three months about kids ten. that were nine years yeah, old ten. in the country. Yeah. So um, for those people, absolutely, we need to intervene and we need to help them. And if that ends up a chronic illness, we have to be able to teach them and allow them to participate. But a lot of times it's what you said. Uh, you know, they were being bullied. People were attacking them. Maybe they were shamed in some way or something happened and they choose a permanent solution to a temporary problem. But if we don't let them know it's temporary, why would they? They're 11, you know? One of the difficult things I I see too, and you know, in today's world, obviously is gender roles are blurred and things are, we're evolving. But Mm -hmm. I think that for me, as I was raised by my mom, primarily as a child, I lived with my dad during high school, which I was grateful for the experience to have both. I lived basically like half of my life at each spot. And I'm glad I spent my, my child years, my formative years with an empathetic mother because, you know, it's so common. I don't even have to say that my parents are divorced. It's so expected these days. But like, you know, my mom instilled in me like those, like you were saying, tools. Like she said it constantly. Talk things out. Be willing to admit that you're weak or wrong or at fault or that you made mistakes and then forgive yourself. And Mm -hmm. that's the biggest thing is, is like you need to learn how to forgive. And that one of the best things she ever said was you don't forgive for them. You forgive for you. So if you've Mm -hmm. wronged somebody, then you forgive them. And then at that point, if you truly meant it and you've truly followed through with that forgiveness or, you know, or whatever, like if you were wronged and you forgive Mm-hmm. You forgive them so that you can be at peace with it. Right. And she, you know, she, she just instilled these tools in me. And I worry because I think both gender, you know, male and female, I, I know that I'm going to get emails, but the all his, genders, all genders have different ways of dealing with it mm-hmm. and different ways that have, have predispositions and different, you know, obstacles to face. And as a young man, I can honestly say that I'm grateful you know, cause you telling your story about how your dad would put down your mom and then your brother did the same thing, kind of similar to you. And I dealt with my brother as well. So there's different dynamics and whatnot being an overpowering bully essentially. 
And realistically, it's because he himself was hurting more than any of us. And yeah. I, you can never compete and compare when it comes to pain because we mm-hmm. all have our own and we should all have more of a group mentality when it comes to that, that it's acceptable for each one of us individually to need help from each other mm-hmm. and guidance. And there's times when we need, you know, we need to accept that we're not, we're not at, uh, putting our be- f- best foot forward. So I just think it's important for me to touch on that fact I'm that, that, I was lucky because my mom instilled that. And then, you know, a year before she did pass, my mom died in 2012. And from what when I wanted to get into this, that she, she did the, uh, autopsy. We didn't do an autopsy because they had told me right over, you know, they're like, well, there's no signs of, she had attempted a year before that mm-hmm. because she had post-traumatic stress. So she had a re uh, episode where she essentially felt like she was being raped again. And it sucked because I, had to talk to her doctor before the year before she died. And I had to ask them, is there any sign of, of this? And my mom was a lesbian. So there was no sign of intercourse, Mm -hmm. you know, there was no penetration. They're like, no, like I, and I had to call my mom a liar essentially. And I was conflicted because it was so real to her. Mm -hmm. And I just, at that point I had, it was like a role reversal where I said, mom, like I cannot have you do this to me. Like you're doing this to me. Like mm-hmm. that, that it was two days before my birthday in 2011 that she had talked about, oh, you know how much, and I, it's like so difficult because I was, I just at that moment, I just said like, I had to release her. So I had one more year before she died and I always called it borrowed time, which I kind of relate that borrowed time to someone that had a loved one that has cancer. Because when you know that that is the inevitable outcome, mm-hmm. her dying young at 54 years old, I knew was going to come. So I was able to prepare myself, which I'm grateful yeah. for. And it sounds crazy, but those tools are what she instilled in me. So she mm-hmm. almost prepared me for it. And I yeah. was grateful for that. I feel for what you're saying about a situation where this person's hard nosed. They're not going to face it. And so you have to learn not by example, you know, mm-hmm. but by and in, in her case, too, that she couldn't control her example. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I, I, what you said about your your birthday, I. Um, my father took his life, uh, 10 days before my 10th birthday and my brother took his life two days after my birthday. Uh, So if that doesn't say like, I'm not thinking about the people I love, I'm not really sure what does. Um, so that, uh, it's something that has always been a struggle, but it also just is as an adult, like I can see how clearly, this is something that you get into that desperation. It doesn't really matter yeah. what's going on. You're going to go there. Like how is somebody going to be in the moment and be like, oh, let me look at the calendar, see if this is going to disrupt mm-hmm. anyone. Yeah. You know, that's just, that's just no totally. possible way. And the know? other thing you're talking about, like with your mom, obviously there's a lot of um, shame and stigma around suicide. And then there are still things in our um, country that, um, even though technically it's not a crime anymore, we do treat it, uh, you right. know, insurance laws, right. other sorts of things that create a scenario. And, um, it's not my story to tell. It's not about me, but I have a very, very close friend that when my brother died, told me that their mother died by suicide nearly 10 years before, and they had never told anyone. They were the person that found her and all of their siblings. She had chronic illness. Everyone just assumed that she just got sick and then died. And it wasn't until somebody else said, hey, like this happened to me, that he was even able to 
you know, bring that up right. and, and like it, acknowledge it because it's just so buried and we're so ashamed of it all. It's a tough situation too, because with my mom, the biggest reason that I chose, like I, I started to get into it, that I chose not to do an autopsy is they straight made it clear that they were like, well, if it comes back and it is a suicide, then there's a little bit of life insurance. There's an inheritance, which full disclosure was about $50,000 that, you know, would be gone, gone, yeah. disappears. The bank mm -hmm. takes it. I mean, it's ridiculous that, yeah. that this person, because they made that choice. So I understand the life insurance. I can get that, that there could be, you know, but when it comes to the money that would be in her bank account, that, that, and I'm not entitled, I've never... I've never felt like entitled to anyone else's money. So that, but in certain circumstances, that is basically the, we're not going to seek justice if there was any foul play or anything outside of that because they're like, there's this back history of it. So that person's right. life is less valuable. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, is what's so frustrating is like we acknowledge this in other things. So if you die by suicide, it's considered what you said, a choice. And so an right. insurance company says, well, they made that choice. Number one, that's not true. When you are sick and in desperate, place like you're not thinking clearly you're not making a choice like you are trying to stop the pain you don't want to be dead but you don't know what else to do so we say well that was their fault that was their choice all of those things but when somebody is a smoker and they die of cancer right the insurance pays prolonged. out right. even though that was their choice to smoke knowing that there was a huge risk of them getting sick and so for me I can't wait till that stuff's gone. I mean, I'm grateful. Like my when my dad died in 88, we put in the obituary, family chose not to disclose cause of death. When my brother died in 2011, I said to my mom, if you can do one thing for me, come clean. Like this is a person who lived open about his mental health issues. And I want you to put in the obituary that's going out in the register guard that he died from depression. Sure. Not sure. that he, you know, chose something or that we're too ashamed and that's to talk a, about it. There's no right or, or wrong way to do that. I think the family can decide. And, you know, some people are more private than others. And some people I'm learning just meeting you that I can relate to you with this, that we are very open and that we use our voice to also be therapeutic to ourselves. Mm -hmm. But also if it can if it can impact others then that is how it's being therapeutic to me. Right. Because if it, if my voice can have volume and someone is changed or touched by that, that's what I live for, mm -hmm. you know? And that's where, <clears throat> like, for my work as an advocate through AFSP, which is the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, which I'm not going to say again, I'm going to say AFSP, <laughs> um, the, uh, the talk that we're doing when we're going to speak with legislators, the answers that we're looking for is to acknowledge that suicide and other sort of physical um, illness, death, those kinds of things need to be looked at as equal. Like we are in a crisis situation around suicide and we are barely funding this. Like if you, we know you give money to HIV research, we give money to heart association, diabetic, you know, uh, cancer, all this stuff. What we see is that when we put attention and we put money into those things, the numbers come down. So what we're trying to say is, 
uh, we need to pay attention to suicide. And for whatever reason, the fact that we have created a scenario where we want to be secret, where we respect people's beliefs, well, those people don't want to be secret. They're secret because the whole society told them they needed to be. So the idea is that if we can get people talking about it, if we can actually create a situation where people look at it the same, like I say all the time, Last time I checked, my brain is in my body, which means that if my brain is malfunctioning, that's a physical illness. So right. stop telling me that I am just, you know, it's all in my head. Well, yeah, technically it is, but sure. you got to give me credit. So is everything else. For, right. For the fact that it's my so body. So is pain in general. Yeah. You know? And when it looks, when we're talking about teenagers, which is a huge thing right now, that's what keeps kids not wanting to talk about it, not wanting to say anything. And it's also what's making it so hard for all of us to get this done is because we still are trying to slide it under the rug and show that this is somehow shameful right so all of the things all of these efforts that are being made by you know us by you know the afsp by nami by a million other organizations it's not about um you know necessarily individual lives I mean, obviously, at the heart of it, it is, but it's It's about making suicide something that we look at as the same. When I talk to kids, when I talk to teenagers, I say, if you broke your arm at school and you went home, would you lie to your parents, lie to your teachers, pretend like it wasn't broken, not go to the not go to the doctor, not get a cast and just try to tough it out because you're embarrassed that you broke your arm? No. Like, I don't care if you broke your arm in the dumbest possible way. You're going to go home and be like, mom, I need to go to the hospital. But when it looks like my feelings got so hurt that now I'm thinking about dying by suicide, I'm embarrassed to say that. And I'm ashamed. And I tell kids, secrets don't save lives. That's not how it works. Right. That's a good thing. If you have a friend who says, don't tell anybody that I said this about wanting to kill myself because I'll be so mad at you and I'll never be your friend. And that's such a betrayal. I tell people, kids, especially if you speak up and that person says, well, screw you, you totally broke my confidence and I hate you now and you're never my friend, but they're still breathing allowed to say those things, then you succeeded. Well, if somebody were to tell me I had this situation where I was suicidal, I would encourage them to share it so that they can help others because of the fact that, you know, that yes, there's a stigma, but we're also as a society moving past some of those things. I kind of equate it to how people with addiction, how a lot of times you'll see memes where people are like, well, addiction isn't a disease. I wish people wouldn't call mm-hmm. it that. And it's like, you know what? Scientists and doctors have agreed that it is for mm-hmm. one, for two, what are you gaining from putting it down? Then I started yeah. realizing that I looked at the individuals and I, I have to admit, made a little bit of a judgment call on how these people, like I thought about their personal stories and if they were affected as by a parent, maybe that was an addict, they were hurt by mm-hmm. those actions. So they have a right to have this kind of lash out mentality. And obviously mm-hmm. memes are designed to divide. Mm-hmm. So when you look at it, you have to think about intent. You have to think about where it's coming from and not because like, as I've battled with alcoholism and almost, you know, up on three years sober now, which is great. But it it really bugged me when I would see those things because yeah, I didn't personally go through rehab or I didn't go to meetings. I just had willpower and, and my 
uh, immediate support system. Mm-hmm. But that being said, like, was it a disease? Absolutely. I had to con- constantly combat it with different tools and different mm-hmm. type of maybe not medication, but therapy. And, and the ways that I did it, I did it on my own. So I didn't get Western medicine. I didn't right. get Eastern med. I just, but I still know that it was in my heart of hearts that it was, and it's something I still yeah. battle with. What know? I say about uh, mental illness and addiction is that um, it is uh, not a lot of illnesses that are chronic um, c- present with behavioral issues. Right. So when you have somebody who has cancer and they are very sick, you might not see their the you know the physical part of that if they are being sick if they're in home in bed. But we don't judge people based on that kind of stuff. But when you see that guy on the street corner that's drunk and talking to himself. It's a that byproduct of is, mental health. Yeah. Exactly. And it's totally something that we look at and we're like, oh, you know, and I think that's where we get the idea that these things are separate. But I don't personally believe that any sort of mental health condition, including addiction, um, aren't, um, you know, diseases or right. illnesses or whatever. Because um, let's be honest, like I know a lot of people who are addicts and recovering addicts. My husband's a recovering addict. Um, nobody chooses to piss themselves and vomit in front of their friends like that's a trouble and that's not like we're having so much fun like at a certain point you have to admit whether they recognize it or not that they're out of control because of something that's malfunctioning not because it's really fun no and because it's an escape and i mean it's it's people that you know maybe not have not had the experience of recreational drug use or whatever it is that they don't understand that it is a lot of times it's an escape. It's because they mm-hmm. want to relieve the pain that they feel inside yep. and then regardless. Then and yeah, is it fun? Yeah, it is fun mm-hmm. for them in a minute, you know, and it stops being fun. And that's why when you're chasing the dragon, essentially that it's not fun, it's misery. There was five mm-hmm. years of my life that I continued to drink, even though I hated it. Mm-hmm. And, and I, ha- I would have fun for like an hour of the night. When I, you know, basically Mm -hmm. the rest of the time I was living with self-doubt and that's what made me change. And I use this story because, because I think it has the suicide, the suicidal tendencies were wrapped up inside of that mental health issue because what made me change is a desire and a will to take back my willpower. Mm -hmm. And I, and I feel the same way where I was acting out well drinking, you know, I had, tied a belt like I was going to hang myself and I Mm -hmm. knew that I wasn't going to go through with it but Mm -hmm. I wanted someone to catch me to see how much pain I was in and you know the next day when people brought it up I was like embarrassed and I didn't want people to talk to me about it but Mm -hmm. I just was like what I learned in that moment and why I I I don't want to say never no I'll never do it again but what I learned and why I have the tools today is what I did instead of being like don't talk about whatever like downplaying it I just thanked them for caring yeah. And I thank them for being there. And mm-hmm. I said, you know, I understand that this is hurting you and I apologize and I'm going to do better. And I didn't just say it like lip service. I actually mm-hmm. started following through and it didn't happen overnight. Oh no. You know, and it's a day by day thing. It's like, I will always be somebody that d- struggles with mental health mm-hmm. always mm-hmm. from day one till the day I die. Mm-hmm. And you know, Michelle Obama, I didn't read the book, but in her last book, she had a thing. Uh, I read an excerpt about imposter syndrome and it's something that that it resonated with me so much. The minute I heard it, I had never heard of that before. Mm -hmm. No matter how successful you are, no matter how respected you are, you constantly live with this. I'm not good enough mentality. Mm -hmm. And I relate with that so much (laughs) that it, it, 
was great. And because of that, I went to Costco and I grabbed a stack of Michelle Obama's books. And if someone was wearing a camouflage hat, I put the book into their cart. No, no, no. But I did that actually. But, (laughs) but no, I just think that that was so inspiring. Take away, if you don't like Michelle Obama, fine, but that's a great message Mm -hmm. that it's okay. No matter what level you're at, that it's okay to be flawed. Yeah. And you know, honestly, like I would say that I have imposter syndrome because I spend a lot of time and have for a long time kind of living between these two worlds. I was very successful in the financial world as a banker when I was young. Ultimately, I was fired from my job because I had anxiety so bad that I couldn't go to work for two months. So you start recognizing like, oh, I guess people are going to figure this out. Um, and then, you know, I went to college. I struggled through that. But what people saw was a girl on stage looking great, singing great looking like she's feeling great and then I'm going into the bathroom to have a panic attack after every class that I have but nobody knows that Um, and then so for me now this is a huge part of this like I can no longer be false I can no longer have somebody look at me and say and especially now that I'm out into the suicide prevention community and advocating and doing this people have seen me they maybe know who I am they've messaged me or contacted me And what I want all of those people to know is like, I'm working through this, which means a lot of the time, if you don't get a message back from me, it's not because I'm, you know, at the spa or on vacation. It's because I'm in bed or I haven't slept in so long that I can't even form a sentence. So this is, and I know we've talked about it and I, um, I just am trying to kind of like right now shift that because I have made myself sick by doing exactly that none of these people know who i am if they did they'd know i was a garbage person and that i don't deserve any of this and so i am doing through my local page here uh the suicide prevention eugene i just started a essentially a vlog um in my natural state i have never ever had any of these people see me with no makeup on i'm like literally waking up in the morning sitting down in front of a camera and saying hey this is what's going on with me this is what i'm doing this is all screwed up because i can't be the person who's like oh you're so amazing without letting people know like this is work this is constant work on my part and i'm blessed and lucky to have people around me that are willing to help me but as long as i pretend like everything's fine and then just internalize this hate it doesn't work so i'm done with that (laughs) that is i first of all extremely commendable and i know you're not doing it to get pats on the back but it's courageous and i respect it a lot because you know i had a good friend of mine when i started the podcast that had came to me and he said that he was dealing with some mental health issues and he wanted to do just that. He wanted to document it. And I was like, well, you know, I think you need to wait till you have some of the tools in place and then you can start. You don't want to, he's like, I want to start at rock bottom. And I'm like, I don't think that's a good idea because then you're, you know, that was at least my advice. And I also Mm -hmm. just said, I am not capable of being involved because that's such a tall order for your personal story. Now, if you want to record those things and not release them, that's fine. So you have to get to a point like with you and the advocacy group that you do, you constantly have to be talking about this pain yeah. and reliving it. And that's courageous. And I, and I rec- I respect it because, you know, that's something my mom did as well, where she was constantly opening up and by talking about it, you're normalizing mm-hmm. that it's, and that's good. And that's where we need to get as a society and as a yeah. culture is that it's welcomed in conversation. Mm-hmm. 
I, you know, I started this journey with a therapist. His name's John Garlinghouse, and he passed away recently, which was very difficult for me. But, um, and he was the person who gave me a lot of these tools. He's the person who said, like, if you want to be successful and you want to stop this in your family, then you just have to say, this is done now. And right. so I've been talking about my story for a long time. I've been doing all these things. But um, as I said, my um, father and my brother um, both died uh, around their 40s. My dad was 39. My brother was 42. My grandfather was 47. So wow. I just turned 40. And that becomes a, this is a ticking time bomb. And as long as I let myself go there, I'm out of time. If you think of it that way. Yeah. And you get to choose. You and know, you, totally. Yeah. So recently I've had some setbacks in my um care as far as I'm looking for something to kind of get me through a little bit better. Like, is there a way to make this better? Or am I just like as good as it gets here? And um, some of those things fell through. And I found myself spiraling into the most negative space of like, there's nothing that can happen that's going to help me like I'm just going to die. And also, I stopped using all of those things that I knew and all those tools. And so what I'm doing on that page every morning when I get up yeah. is doing I'm basically like doing a lesson for each of the things that I have learned that I need to remember that I can do. And I thought, oh, um, I'll, we can talk a little about part of what has like kicked me in the butt and forced me to like set a goal. Um, but I have a goal. I'm going to go to an overnight walk for AFSP, the out of the darkness walk that's in San Francisco. It's overnight, it's 18 miles. So I made that commitment and said, I'm going to do it. And ultimately I need to use these tools, so I need to remind myself. So every day on that page, I'm talking about something that I have used to help me and might help other people. And when I sat down, I thought, oh, gosh, it's like three months. Like, how am I going to do every day? How would I ever possibly like think of things to say? And I spent about. 20 minutes and I have 43 topics right. <laughs> that I can talk on. Yeah. So, you know, you, you start getting out there and just saying like, this is cathartic. This is helpful for me. But also, is there anybody out? I mean, even if one person tunes into one live sure. and listens for takes. three minutes and hears something that helps, then awesome. And so I'm doing it selfishly for sure. me because if I don't, I'm not going to survive. But I also know that part of that has to do with just being out well and, and it's accountability it's like what i talked about before absolutely. it's holding yourself accountable it's like you've set goals daily mm -hmm. goals and that's where you start to see rewards when you have daily goals you can get to monthly goals and then life yeah. goals mm -hmm. you know so uh i we were going to talk about 13 reasons why briefly we don't have a ton of time but i want to talk about some of the tools i mean what I'll just say, the debate's already been had on, on the show, 13 Reasons Why, Netflix show, and people may or may not be familiar, but essentially, in my opinion, without a conversation, if teenagers watch the show without a conversation with their parents, they're watching a show glorifying suicide and using it as vengefulness towards the, 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 the left, the, the, lo the people that live with the loss. Yeah. And because it's about a girl who writes 13 tapes, records 13 cassette tapes to 13 different individuals about how they're the reason that she did it. Right. And the scene in the show, because my girlfriend and my stepson watched it and we did have great conversations and my stepsons had a, a really good friend of theirs who committed suicide in, in high school. And um, 
So it was something that was near and dear to them. And the scene where she goes through with it was not pretty. I mean, it was done in a, I thought in a honest portrayal where it ends up showing that like, you know, we've built this thing up. So I think the show is pretty great, honestly. But at the same time, it's like video games in the way that it's like, Mm -hmm. it's not the video games wrong. It's that the wrong person's eyes. Right can be disrupted by that totally so first i will say that um if you go to afsp.org there is um kind of their opinion of what they think uh needs to happen in order for this to be safe so you can kind of look at that if you are a person who's a parent and you're just hearing about this and you have some idea i really recommend reading that um my personal opinion of it uh, is pretty close to what they have to say ultimately what you said which is you know talk to your kids if you're going to watch it with them pause it in places where you you know and ask them and you know there's it's not just suicide i mean sexual assault drug abuse bullying like there's a tons of things that need to be talked about yeah, but like you said show. needs to be safe but i also there's something that's really important that we know and that is that talking to people and especially kids about suicide does not increase their liability their likelihood to try to die by suicide sure. like they don't they already know like that if is we a think scary we're, thing you know because yeah. people think that it, if it glorifies it that and i've had this battle in my head about it too and like the way i look at it because you do fear that people are gonna start to think oh that's what the cool that's the outcome Mm -hmm. that could get me the most you know attention i mean obviously with social media and people i mean Mm -hmm. you know people are out of control like there was a couple on youtube that was trying to up their ante every time so they can get more followers and one of them he put a bible in front of his stomach and his wife shot him well he died yeah <laughs> you know i mean what totally. you, like what you know because they're trying to up the ante on this recognition but i don't know so it's such a difficult the thing that i look at for for kids is um you know in that they're dealing with these issues so let's talk about them with them we need to catch them small i mean as we just said like nine ten year old kids like we need to be looking at kids like we teach elementary school kids if a person comes up to you and tries to get you to get in a van or tries to touch you or does successfully touch you like tell a parent so we need to be teaching those kids like if you are feeling or thinking about doing something to yourself that's harmful then also do that far as that tv show goes i agree with you i don't necessarily think it glorified it but i don't i don't subscribe to the idea that somebody else makes somebody take their life like you like no hannah chose even though all of her feelings all of that stuff is true and is valid and how it made her feel like other people shouldn't have to absorb that like you you need to um i mean i hate to use that word of choice because i know that that there's a desperation there but i don't think that it's fair to blame other people at all and the show is good in the way that she is a flawed individual obviously it's not like she's this person that's like i'm gonna show you and then that's like oh that's the right move right (laughs) like this person is very flawed Mm -hmm. she did a lot of terrible things to people it's a it's a good show i mean it's pretty 
it's I don't know. I mean, I right. I I would have the excuse that someone else was watching it, but I got pretty hooked on it. I'm not gonna lie. Like I enjoyed yeah. I enjoyed some of the you know the concepts, and mm-hmm. that's the kind of person I am. I like talking those things out. Yeah, I watched it. I was hesitant at first, but as I said, I mean, I've been exposed to this, and I've talked about it so much that I am more comfortable talking about suicide than a lot sure. of people. But for me, one of the things, and this is something that isn't specifically stated in like AFSP stuff or what I've um, heard specifically, but um, in regards to the conclusion of that, um, my opinion is if you are a parent and you want to show your child these things, you should watch it first or at least right. research to know what's going on. And maybe with them too. Yeah. And absolutely for me, like, and this is, <laughs> sounds stupid, but like in real life, I am the most anti spoiler person. Like I won't even watch the like next on this episode. Like I hate to know what's going to happen, sure. but I watched it after speaking with another advocate that was, um, you know, across the country, friend of mine that I met through. And he was like, Hey, have you watched this? And we started talking about it. So I knew it was coming. I didn't know exactly what it was. But I knew that I could make a choice to either watch it or not watch it. And I think for me, I didn't have a problem with that. But having the knowledge that that's coming, I think that that, that's a good point. I think it's really like stunning. And I think people deserve to have the option. Like when I'm watching a, you know, a horror gory movie. I have the right to, if I see this is coming, like look away or not want to participate in that. So maybe that means you watch the whole show and then you stop it and you say, okay, like this is what happened now. Or maybe your kid says, I'm not, I'm okay with that. Like I want to talk about it. And I think it's really personal. So like, let's not, you know, throw the whole thing out because it's somehow, you know, just glorifying or making it look good. Like the reality is it was pretty accurate and, um, the actual knowing, act. I mean, yeah, the, knowing the, uh, that it's coming helps a lot. The stuff around it is pretty outlandish. I mean, it's a TV show, but right. But don't forget that yeah, it's a scripted but, drama, right, right? But uh obviously, the person that wrote it had a history or whatnot with that in their world. But you know, I I don't know. I mean, it's something that I wanted to talk to you about because I think it's important. Yeah. Um, we don't have a ton of time. Mm-hmm. I w- I do. We didn't really get to get into prevention. So I think yeah. the best thing, the website. I think yeah. that people can go. We really talked more about symptoms and the, with with suicide and the world mm-hmm. around it. Yeah. And it's funny because I initially had intended on talking about prevention, and that's the thing that I mean in a quick. I know it's not a quick thing, but what is it that it, that means? Like, what is it that that what what is the biggest tool that people use to for prevention? So um, what AFSP is doing is um, research and what research needs is money. And what we know about our system in our country is that. Uh, we need money for everything. And if we want to make a change, we need a lot of it. And so we go, including myself, I, you know, go to Washington, DC. I've advocated with, you know, um, you know, federal uh, legislators were going on Tuesday to Salem to do um, the here in local Oregon legislators. And what we do is we say, Hey, if you voted to help support vets, if you voted to help support, um, you know, science research against, if you have helped to support the suicide hotline, like we're, that's awesome. Thank you. But we also need like 150 million more dollars. And so 
there's a certain part of this that's just like systemic. We raise money that overnight walk that I'm going to raises money. Um, the walk we have locally here in the fall, the Out of the Darkness Community Walk helps to raise money um, and bring awareness to it. But I think when it comes down to it, what we really need is to change the laws and change people's opinions. And the only way that we do that is by putting money in and saying, okay, machine, like, okay, political system, like do your thing right. and make it so. Right. So the website is, what is it? The website for um, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention is just AFSP.org. There's tons of stuff okay. about what we do. And for everyone across the board, for people that are struggling, right? Yes. It's, it's for, for people that have dealt with the loss. Yes. For people that want to... You know, so all of that. And so if you are a person out there that's saying like, hey, I want to get involved, but like, I'm not going to be this lady who is like traveling to D.C. about it. Sure. Um, there is a link on that website that says take action and you can become an advocate. And through the advocate program, all you're doing basically is forwarding emails that AFSP creates and writes for you and puts in the email of your legislator. And what it does is, OK, hey, Peter DeFazio, like this is coming up. And instead of him getting 50 emails right. saying hey can you vote for this if he gets 5,000 emails then that really makes an impact so I recommend and get like if you're gonna as how I started if you're gonna get involved with like the easiest possible way to make an impact become a field advocate right. for AFSP right so well you know we're gonna end this um, with a song and so you are in a band I am and you are the singer. And so I asked, I like to end the show with local music. I usually use stuff I've written, but I'm running out because I'm only, I've only made like 50 or 60 songs. So I asked you and you were like, well, you're in luck because here's me singing and tell us a little bit about the song. So this is your group. It's, it's a Wapner County. That's right. And uh, when this song was, was written, uh, my brother was in our band, we were, we went by the Wapner County country all-stars. And when he passed, we, the rest of us kind of stayed together and changed this. But this song, he actually wrote, um, after one of his close friends died by suicide. Um, he obviously suffered with suicidal ideation. He knew other people, including me. So the song is called everyone like me. And the idea behind it is like, there's a lot of people out there suffering and we're really all having the same experience. We just don't know. And so we feel really isolated by that. And so he felt like he worked really hard at trying to get better and it was very difficult. And so the line that, and actually I have a bit tattooed on my leg after he died, um, is everyone like me, exhausting possibilities. People who are out there who are trying to find a way to be better and are still struggling. And so for me, this song reminds me of both this is something that you can lose if you don't stay focused on and if you don't continue when my before my brother died he told me there's no shot for me there's nothing out there for me and I told him well there might be if you go there's certainly not right. but you know and so I'm always reminded I'm exhausting these possibilities and so this song is about a close friend but it's really about everyone so did he sing it originally and no then he wrote it he for me wrote to the sing. lyrics and you sang it you wrote it that's yeah. cool one thing that i think is interesting about it is um because of my personal issues around feeling shame and feeling less than um the, when i write it it's like everyone like me like 
all of the people who are like me, but then, but then it everyone means like me everyone too. like yeah. me. And so I feel like I it, to it. some degree, like it's kind of both. Sure. And that's that. the beauty of music is that it's up for, you know, the writer has an intention, but then also, especially with the style of music is that people mm-hmm. can, can resonate how it resonates. Yeah. And, and as long as it's being used for good, then that's something that we can, you know, appreciate. Mm-hmm. Well, Sarah, it's been a pleasure meeting you. This has been really fun. I wish I had more time. So we'll just have to have you back, you know, yeah, and we'll do it again. Sure. So we're going to end. This is Wapner County with everyone like me. Thank you so much. Sun's here.